Hello, this is Thomas Cruz of SAE and Associates. You're now tuned in to SAE CARES podcast, CARES being short for Clinical and Research Experts. For today's podcast, SAE's CEO, Dr. Estrin, and I will be discussing the inner workings of the refined residential design. And here at SAE, when we talk residential treatment, our go-to guy is Bill Panapinto. And for that reason, I'm really excited he was able to join the conversation today. So uh, Bill worked at the New York State Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services for 27 years, serving as Bureau Director for Treatment Development and then for housing. Since 2013, he's been working part-time for St. Joseph's Addiction Treatment and Recovery Centers as Director of Special Projects. He also has a consultant practice called Panapinto Consulting. Since 2013, he's been an associate for SAE, uh, as well as a pro bono consultant for the Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Providers for New York State. And you've held clinical and then program administrative positions at Kings County Hospital, Beth Israel, and Bronx Municipal. So um, I believe that now more than ever, uh, it's really important to bring light to residential redesign. And uh, I knew you'd be a great fit for this discussion. Uh, we, we've had discussions about this numerous times by now. Um, and I feel that it's important to create that comparison. You know, we have that, we have that traditional procedure in addiction treatment in residential communities. And now we're, we're moving to this menu, right? A menu of treatment options really geared toward the, uh, the consumer, right? So before anything, let's start with the term itself, residential redesign, re. So before the redesign, how were residential services being provided to communities? Well, I think it's really important to look at, at the history because the history of programs and services to, to clients also impacts on communities and it impacts on the culture of an agency and, and how that agency sees its mission and, and sees its progress and its success. So in New York State, traditionally, historically, there really have been two residential systems of services. Primarily New York City and downstate has been a system of services that rely on larger programming that used to be called therapeutic communities, mm. now called intensive residential programs. Right. Historically, maybe 18 months length of stay, now pretty much 12 months at, at most. Uh, larger facilities, maybe 100 beds, maybe bigger, uh, with a lot of community building and community therapeutic interaction on the site, in the program, in the house. Mm. Uh, that's the tradition of long-term residential care for most of the New York City programs and most of the residents who have experienced residential care uh, through the OASIS license programs in the city and downstate. If you look upstate, beyond the lower Hudson Valley, and, and you look at the rest of, of upstate New York, you see a different service system residential model mm. that primarily had people go from detoxification to, to a short-stay inpatient rehabilitation service that was around a month, around 30 days, 28 days, now about 20 days, very medically oriented. And then for people who couldn't really go back to a, a positive support in the community and where they were living, 
they went to community residences that used to be called alcoholism halfway houses and there's about 2,000 units of those still up in upstate New York okay people stay maybe four to six months but what makes it different is the treatment doesn't occur in the house the treatment occurs in an outpatient clinic or usually very close by to where the residence is and people go every day or three or four times a week and that is the process of treatment after that length of stay in a community residence upstate after a length of stay in a long-term residential program intensive residential program where do people go when the residential term is over right and what has what has become more and more problematic for at least the last 20 years is so many people come to these residential programs homeless mm -hmm. so the dilemma has been if you're homeless when you come in you're going to be homeless when you leave so it has forced all of these programs, whether it be big programs in New York City or smaller uh, uh, not-for-profits in upstate New York, to address the need for supportive housing. So that historically has kind of evolved, and that's, that's important to now look at residential redesign, because residential redesign is saying three elements, stabilization, rehabilitation and then reintegration mm -hmm. so if we look at that process let me step back another minute and say what is both of these residential systems mm -hmm. whether it's the upstate halfway house clinic or whether the, it's the intensive residential model they've adapted well to homelessness to HIV AIDS among uh, uh, substance users uh, to a whole array of issues, to the crack cocaine epidemic. But now, now this whole residential service system, as well as the outpatient system, is now facing heroin, opioid, prescription opioid abuse. And it's a different, different context. The people are younger. 75% of the people now uh, seeking treatment are seeking treatment for heroin slash prescription opioid abuse. And 75% of those people are 18 to, to 30 years of age. So you've got life stage issues that are different. And you have economic class differences because now you have lots of middle class young adults who have lost a job, dropped out of school, and are struggling now, who've become homeless for the first time. But what makes it different is you've got active families, you've got parents of young adults saying, what am I going to do with my kid? I don't want my kid to OD and die like my neighbor or like my, my relative. Right. So you have a population that's not only younger, but is still connected to, to parents. Mm -hmm. So how do you adjust your residential programming to that dynamic? It's really, really different. Sure. Then we step back and say, what, what's, why residential redesign? Why did the state agency Oasis take this on? Right, yeah, I mean, yeah, Bill, just to go back to what you mentioned, yes. three elements of treatment, uh, stabilization being one, mm -hmm. uh, rehabilitation being the second, and the third being reintegration. So talk a bit about like what a provider needs to do to assure that all of those are being yes. met, and is it 
uh, what are the options that they have? And do they have to meet all of these options? Or is it now with this new design, do they not have to? Can they hit one and two and not three, right? Good, good. I, yeah. think, I think that's really an important piece to look sure. at. Let me just step back, though, and say, why did Oasis do this redesign of residential? And it is a response to healthcare reform and Medicaid redesign, and, and on the federal level, uh, Center for Medicaid and, 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 and Medicare saying, you've got to have a patient care, a patient-driven system of care, not a program-driven system of care. So what, what's really difficult for agencies that are doing residential care for years and years and years is the the model of, of residential services was program designed and it was phases of treatment and people went through phases of treatment and progressed and continued. Now you've got Medicaid, mm -hmm. you've got the state, right. you've got advocates, everyone's saying, no, 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 let the resident decide when I'm going to do what and what kind of services am I going to participate. Where's my role in a treatment plan? It shouldn't be programmed for everyone. It should be for me. Mm -hmm. How do I do this? So the residential redesign at Oasis constructed, I believe, is an attempt at trying to adapt to and connect and respond to the need for a patient-centered treatment process and, and treatment experience. So, Bill, what you're saying is that in the past, there were two factors. One, the pro residential programs were very structured, step by step by step. Yeah. Patients had no choice. They had to march through the different steps. And secondly, there was a culture in terms of the staffing. Anybody in the program who was on staff had to be someone in recovery, had to be someone who came from a recovery background. Well, certainly that was a, a, a has been historically a, a major a major component, and I, and I think again, uh, programs have evolved o over time. Uh, I, I would say that today, residential programs uh, really have a multidisciplinary staff uh, uh, construct in terms of a, a staffing mix, uh, but but the value of people in recovery and people who have a personal recovery experience and how they can apply that and, and, and have a, a sense of mission to help others, that, that remains in, and actually that is a strength that can be, can be utilized in, in terms of the new redesign. Because when you look at the federal CMS material, you, you look at what the New York State Department of Health is saying, Medicaid redesign, what the managed care companies say, they're saying, oh, recovery support is significant. Recovery peer advocates, recovery coaches, this should be a major part of, of a system of care, a recovery-oriented mm. system of care. Right. So the, 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 there is a, there's an opportunity here to take this rich tradition of people in their own recovery providing services and helping others to to formulate this and, and present it in a way that provides recovery supports. So you, you now have the opportunity to have not only paid staff, but also uh, a persons perhaps on a stipend kind of a situation who are peer advocates, peer mentors, recovery coaches, who can augment the paid staff 
in a program. So, so there's a, an opportunity to build this in a positive way. Uh, so I, I think that's important. What I think is a real struggle right now is trauma-informed counseling, trauma-informed environment, uh, the sanctuary movement really focuses on person-centered and mm -hmm. on what my life history is and how can I move forward in a way that's, that's, that's palliative and, and growth-oriented. That really can be oppositional to a program structure concept of phases that everyone goes through. That's clearly so that's, that's the challenge. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is bringing on new elements of treatment that are very patient-centered but very critical to the patient's history. And I believe you mentioned at one point that many of the new younger people coming in have trauma issues. Yes, I think tra trauma is a good is a good place to, to look at this in terms of where the the, the, the possibility to, to use a redesign to, to make for more effective treatment. Uh, we know that trauma exists in childhood, trauma exists in young adulthood. Sure, there's PTSD and, and mm, veterans yeah. who have experienced combat. There's domestic violence survivors. Uh, there's a whole array of trauma, but what has become real uh, common is when a person begins to have enough trust in, when, they, when they're in a residential setting for, for a while, the, the people begin to open up and talk about their personal traumas so that this, this can be something that really uh, is, is rehabilitative, it's, it's, it's positive, it's growth oriented, it's certainly relapse prevention at its best. Uh, and, 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 and so this, this may really be the mechanism or the sort of linchpin that can help agencies move toward more patient response. And, and I guess, I guess what, I, what I wanted to say before we go too much further is a residential program has to have some degree of structure. Yeah. Some degree, this cannot be the chaos of, I'm going to decide whether I want to get up this morning. I'm going to decide whether I'm going to take my medication. I don't want to talk to a counselor. Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not going to help clean up. Uh, th this is not feasible. So there's got to be a way to, to, to identify those services, activities, interventions in a residential day that really are mandatory. And then some others that really look about the therapeutic process mm -hmm. and should be a participation, a decision shared by the resident and his primary counselor. Is it, do you feel comfortable in, a, in, a, in terms of where your head is at today to start to talk about your childhood history of abuse or, or or what has happened to you in terms of relationships or the loss of a parent. Uh, are you ready now? Do you feel comfortable with this? Because we can do this individually in a counseling session. We can do this in a small group, but you need to, to, to participate in that choice. Right. And then there should be lots of other activities and, and groups and educational pieces mm -hmm. and, uh, that are available during the day that the client should be absolutely fully free. I want to go to yoga. I, I, I really want to learn how to play the guitar. There's a whole array of, of activities that should enrich the life of people, mm -hmm. should be part of a residential experience, and should be fully at the discretion of the resident. 
So some kind of a balance right. between those activities and interventions that, that really are necessary for there to be a residential program. Uh, those that are therapeutically timed appropriate now with a lot of input from, from the resident. And then those that which, which really should be at the discretion. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so maybe that, that's a way to approach, approach this process. So you're saying that a good residential redesign would incorporate three levels. One which is mandated activities that really constitute the core of residential treatment. A second level is access to programs that are based on the individual's consultation with his counselor right. to determine his readiness to participate. In more therapeutic. In, more, in a therapeutic venture. And the third is more of a menu of choices, much like uh, that the, the individual can decide. He can go to yoga, he can join a running group. Uh, uh, I, for example, many times see uh, some of the substance abuse programs have running groups in Central Park. They have mm. teams. Okay. Uh, so that could be an option. It's not mandated. Uh, it could be good for his physical health, but that could be a choice of the individual. So, so I, I am hoping that that, that kind of a, 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 a breakdown or, or a clustering of services and activities is something that agencies can have that discussion and dialogue with the state agency with OASIS. Uh, I, this is something I'm, I'm just putting out there. Right. I've, I've done some consulting for a couple of agencies uh, that are working on redesign, and, and this is something people seem comfortable with. And it would be great to get a response from the people listening to the podcast right. as to whether this seems comfortable. I guess the last piece is about programs should have some choice. You, you started, Thomas, a couple of minutes ago to, mm -hmm. to ask me, well, does an agency have to do all three elements? Right. And, and I, think, I think that's an important decision. Not only does an agency do all three elements, but do all three elements have to occur in the same facility, at, at the, at, in one building, on one site. Because it may be that given your connections to your community and your traditional referral sources, you may want to have one site where you do stabilization and rehabilitation. You may have another site where you want to do rehabilitation and reintegration. Um, you may have stabilization and rehabilitation on one site, and reintegration in a separate side. You're really not, not bound. And what's very, very good about the flexibility in the OASIS proposed regulation mm -hmm. is that a provider is not tied to a set number of beds in each of the three elements. You're not being licensed for 10 stabilization, 30 rehabilitation, and mm -hmm. 10 uh, reintegration. That equals 50. You're going to be licensed for 50, and you're going to be allowed to, to move that. Why? You're going to move it because of the flexibility mm -hmm. of who are your residents and what do they, they require and need and are asking for at any given time. So you may have a, a floating number of stabilization. My guess is your number in rehab will probably be more stable, more mm -hmm. more more uh, uh, follow uh, less fluid, I should say. And then your reintegration may, may change depending on, 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 on who you have. That's a really important, and that's different, and that's a really good progressive 
uh, piece to, to this redesign that people really, really need to, to take a look at. Um, right. You know, Bill, there's another point. You know, we're old state office hands. You're in Oasis, and I was in OMH, and honestly, I started at the same time you did. Right, right. So we've been through the wars, but we know that when the agencies put out these new regulations, they always have a mechanism of enforcing it. They always have leverage. So what is OASIS leverage in this case? So, so th this leverage is, is really about when is your current state license for residential programming, when does it expire? Right. You have to submit uh, the 820, the, the redesign application. It has to be reviewed and approved sure. by the time your, your current license expires so that you then can receive the new license. If you, if you don't get the new license, you lose congregate care revenue and you lose the state Oasis state aid. You are in danger of losing your program. So what this means systemically is that not everybody is due, this all has to be done by January right. uh, you know, of, of 2017 or July this year. But it, it's this flow. But I do know that almost all of the Oasis ongoing licenses are three years, issued for three years. Okay. So some people might have just gotten their license renewed okay. you know, uh, within the past year uh, under the old regulation, so now they've got close to three years. Okay. But, the, but people whose licenses were, were renewed a year ago or a year and a half ago, they're coming up on, on that three-year deadline. Right. I so mean, so it, yeah. there's some time pressure yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, you, you're talking about they have to submit an application, and then they have to be approved. Yes. But, you know, let's call a spade a spade. They're not even submitting an application, right? Talk about that, that reluctance. Well, what, where, yeah. where is what the is reluctance the, from? What is the reluctance to submit? Well, are I, there financial disincentives? Are there financial blockers? Uh, I, 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 think, I think there's a couple of, of, of major issues that, that, yeah. that are contributing to agencies being reluctant to, to, to formally submit. Um, part of it is a struggle with, can we maintain our mission of serving people with significant substance abuse problems? Can we continue to do our mission? Can we really do this more patient-centered service and allow us to have success in what we know is proven. We know our model has worked for thousands and thousands of people. Can we take the risk that this new, this new model is going to also be successful? So that, that's, a, that's a question, that's a staff question, it's an agency culture question, it's a board question. Right. I, I, I don't see this lightly, I think that's really, really important. The other piece is, I don't think there's any other states in the country that have done this in terms of long-term residential program. So it's not like New York can say, well, you know, it worked well in California and it's fine in Florida and it looks good in, you know, in, 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 in Illinois, you know. Uh, because you want to look at states with big cities. I mean, if, sure. if, if this doesn't work in Chicago or if it doesn't work in L.A., uh, then, then, you know, what, what, what are we doing? You know, yeah, we've right, got to be right. careful. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that, that reluctance. Yeah. Then there is an issue about 
the agencies, whether they be the old therapeutic communities or the old apples and halfway houses and clinics, they've gotten historically Oasis State Aid for, you know, for the last 30 years. That covers the deficit. Oh, we're going to rely on Medicaid bill, billing and, 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 and the timeliness of those Medicaid reimbursements to cover the major portion of our operating budget, mm -hmm. our staffing, paying for food and light, the whole deal. Is it going to work? Well, those agencies that have experienced a flow of Medicaid revenue in their clinics, for example, have more experience and say, all right, we know there's a time lag. We know that for the most part we're going to get so they have this the amount. they have the structure and experience. Well, that's right. Do you, do you, you're right. Do they have the infrastructure and have they experienced a, a, you know, in a positive way a flow of Medicaid revenue? Mm -hmm. If you haven't had that on the outpatient side, or on an inpatient rehabilitation side, but mostly on the outpatient side, you're going to also be a little reluctant to, to, to say, I've got hundreds and hundreds of beds, I've got a couple hundred staff, I've got a lot invested here. Am I, I'm not ready to risk the major flow of money because if I say I'm doing this and now it's going to be Medicaid revenue, I know I'm going to have a reduced level of that Oasis State Aid. That's not a quarterly check that's coming to me, you know, as a you know, as an advance. It's when does the Medicaid money come? Yeah. So I think, and, and I do think Oasis perhaps ought to have more discussion with providers, with Medicaid managed care providers, with State Department of Health, maybe even with the State Division of the Budget that says, hey, as we start this. Where's the safety net? What's going to happen if agencies are looking at real uh, shortfalls in terms of cash flow? What's going to happen? Is there going to be, at least for the first year in the redesign, in the new program uh, uh, regulation, the opportunity to at least have some state aid money available so on like that quarterly basis to make sure the agencies don't have an enormous uh, shortfall? See. So you're saying they feel more reassured if there was kind of a safety net funding mechanism as they're moving into this new system. But what has also occurred to me, the state is moving away from a fee-for-service Medicaid to Medicaid managed care, yes. mm -hmm. which now throws the behavioral health vendors into play and negotiating rates. And so, and so, and so all of this then gets factored into this proposal in terms of this new redesign model where it's not a bed rate. If it were simply a, a, a bed rate, uh, like a hospital bed rate, at least you, once you negotiate that rate, you, you know what you got. But this is about how many of these Medicaid billable interventions occur in a given day that you can then bill for. So you've got some, some fluidity here. It's not as secure as a, as a, bed, as a, as a bed rate. Mm -hmm. uh, it, could, it can fluctuate. And therefore, if you have, for example, in a given month, if you have more beds dedicated to stabilization, where you know there's all this medical intervention and, and prescription of, of medications and nursing coverage, you know you're going to have more Medicaid money. If in a given month you have fewer stabilization beds and more reintegration beds, where maybe there's not a whole lot of Medicaid billable interventions, your revenue is going to drop in that month. So how, you know, you, how are you going to deal with that? Now, I do know 
that Oasis just issued a bulletin that said uh, there will be a disrupt VAC money available as a transition to cover additional staffing for residential redesign. But it's, it's about a couple of hundred thousand per year and it's time limited. And that may help in terms of adding uh, um, health care staff, nursing staff, maybe some more physician time, maybe some psychologist social work time. But that doesn't take away what we just spoke of, which is, will I have a real slowdown in my cash flow because of the Medicaid reimbursement? Because the managed care companies are, you know, when they approve and when that Medicaid money will come to me, as opposed to a quarterly advance check from Oasis for my net deficit. Mm -hmm. Big difference. Right, so there's a lot of unknown factors here. There are. Which are contributing to the discomfort of the sure. residential providers. I believe that's right. They're very reluctant to jump into this new frying pan, so to speak. I, I, I agree with you, and I, I do think that, that these are the kinds of issues that, that need to be articulated uh, and that providers have to speak to, not only with Oasis, but they, they, this is State Department of Health, Medicaid division issues, because it absolutely impacts in terms of the, the, the contracts the State Health Department gives to the insurance agencies that are going to be the Medicaid pro care providers, managed care providers. One of the things you mentioned, which I think could be helpful, is that you have some experience in developing this redesign. You've worked with a couple of agencies. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I was an agency and I'm, I'm, I'm bewildered, I'm frankly scared, I'm wondering if my agency will survive, mm -hmm. might I come to you to get a, a, an assessment of, of where I am and what I should do? Cer certainly. I, I mean, I am absolutely available and I'm available. I can be contacted. I can be contacted through SAE. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely open. I don't have all the answers uh, for sure, but I think that the, these are the kinds of, of issues that, that really need to be put on the table and looked at. And different programs have, are you know, going to be in different, in different situations. But absolutely, I think it's really important to be creative with, with the flexibility here and, and not feel that every facility that I have and that I currently operate has to do all three elements, that my agency has to do all three elements, and, and what kind of a mix am I expecting? What are my traditional referral sources, both coming in and going out? Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and I think that's, that's, that's really, really going to be important. And then what's the size of my current facilities do I need as many beds as I have now? And, do, and, and what kind of a mix do I want in terms of those beds? Mm -hmm. uh, because there's potential for repurposing here. And, and mm -hmm. that's, that's another piece. You may have a large facility located in the city where maybe you're going to reduce the, size, the total size of your residential licensed beds and use some of the space and repurpose and use it, for example, for permanent supported housing mm. or for clinic space, outpatient space, and co-locate uh, with primary health care and, and have that on site as well. So I, I, think, th I think there's lots of potential here right. uh, uh, and, and not to be locked into, I have 
the number of beds, in the number of facilities, and I have to do all of these elements in each of my facilities. That, that, that I think, is, is, is making this a much more difficult planning mm. process. Right, and I think one of the things that's emerging for me, if I'm an agency, I want to have some way of doing the financial projection of what uh, this change will mean. Yes. And I think this is something that uh, we're comfortable doing, SAE, and yes. I can envision right. collaborating with you, Bill, sure. to do a complete package where you would help the agency in terms of the program design. And you guys can take a look at the financial projections. I think that's significant. We're very good at the financial projections. We've been working on uh, various uh, Medicaid managed care projects where we look at options of how agencies can adapt to the environment and then do financial projections based on choices. Well, what I'm seeing here is your knowledge base, and you know, you and I go back way back (laughs) when, but you really, have your hands on in a very granular way of the nature of what's involved in this. And I think I would encourage agencies to give you a call. We Give us a call, we'll arrange. And I think what you just said, Steve, that you're looking at the program side and the development strategic planning, but factoring in those, those uh, financial projections, I think, are really, really significant. Absolutely. And, w- and, and need to be incorporated into your decisions as, again, uh, do I keep the number of beds I have now? Do I, you know, do, does each of my facilities do all of these functions? These are, these are pieces that really... Right, and we can add to it projections uh, varying the uh, financial outcomes based on the options you present. Yes. So, in a sense we can offer agencies an opportunity to get a little more predictability mm-hmm. in terms of their decision to go forward, and if they go forward, to determine which option works best for them in terms of their survival and even to thrive. That's great, that's good, that makes good sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if you take a step back, right, the, the, the bottom line is that this residential redesign is geared toward the patient, and yes. that's really what this is all about. Right, so Bill, why don't you uh, provide like a concluding point why providers really should be taking that step forward and applying? Well, again, I, and I think perhaps really it's, it's, I would say, begin to really look at this, uh, this, this sort of time pressure of when is my application, uh, sure. you know, when, when is my current license uh, uh, expired, right. but look at this in a strategic planning way. Mm-hmm. And, Yes, this is important for patients, yes. uh, but you want to have a process and a service that is consistent with your agency's mission, for sure. consistent with the success you've had. Uh, y- your agency has to be comfortable, mm-hmm. staff comfortable, uh, board comfortable, the people in the community that you, you have, have, have helped over years have to have some impact. And I would say, I would say truly as a last step, mm-hmm. talk to the people who are in your residential program today yeah. and talk to your alumni who have been in your program and have, have completed in the past year and get their feedback over what do you think should be mandated? What would you like to see a real decision in? How do you want to see this work? Get that feedback from current residents and recent people who have completed. Uh, I think that's key because honestly, I don't think that kind of focus group 
has occurred um, prior to the putting together of these sure. proposed regulations. I think it really would benefit every agency that has to deal with this mm -hmm. to get that feedback from from current residents and alumni, mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and then let's factor that into where, where do you go from there? I think that's a brilliant point because, you know, in a lot of the federal SAMHSA grants, Substance yes. Use Mental Health Services Administration, they require that consumers, constituents of the service, be involved in the planning yeah. and in the operational input and in the discussion of the deliverables, the outcomes. Yes. So they, they get involved in planning, they get involved in operations, and they get involved in the outcomes. And mm -hmm. it's critical because their input can modify a program in a very beneficial way. Yes, yes. And I think let's do this before we leap into what the redesign looks like for a given agency. Right. Let's get the benefit of our people, our residents, and our alumni. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, in concluding, permit me to suggest that if you have questions, give us a call at SAE and we'll arrange for Bill to give you a consult, to give you a sense of where you might go. We like to call it the discovery phase. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, where you discover options, choices, and we can add to it our ability to do the financial projections based on the options you're exploring with Bill so that you have a really useful document that can allow you to make an informed decision. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Dr. Estrin. So uh, yeah, if you have any questions for anyone at SAE, Bill is always gonna be hands on deck. So again, this is Thomas Cruz and you can email me at tcruz at saeassociates.com, no and. So Bill, again, I can't thank you enough for stopping by for today's conversation. And of course, Dr. Estrin for joining in as well. So thank you both for, right. for being here. This is real good. Yeah, yeah. Well, that concludes today's SAE Cares podcast. Feel free to subscribe on our website, saeandassociates.com, to receive our issue briefs, podcasts, and newsletters on everything related to behavioral health. Take care.